Amen. This is the word of God, right? And may God write it on our hearts. We're spending six weeks together as a church in Luke 1 and 2, studying the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And this is an Advent sermon series. But let's be clear. In the spirit and season of Advent, we are rejecting silly Advent calendars. We are rejecting liberal churches, denial of the gospel by their obsession with Advent's historicity while neglecting biblical Christian truths. We are rejecting any idea of Roman papacy that's associated with the liturgical calendar that suggests saving faith by something other than being justified by faith alone. And yet while rejecting all those, we are choosing to recover the historical recognition from church tradition to remember this season is about the coming of Christ. Advent, we said last week, was and has historically been celebrated among Christ's followers in three ways. It celebrates the coming of Jesus as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. Secondly, it celebrates him as the one who has come in our hearts and reigns there as the king through regeneration of his spirit. He reigns in those who believe in him now. It also is a celebration and uh, the looking of his second coming, where he will come as the judge of all the earth, judging people wicked and righteous. He'll judge all. And so those are the three ways we think about this season. Last week, our first sermon of three was given concerning John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, it was titled The Last Prophet. This week, our second sermon on John the Baptist, picking up here in this story, is titled um, The Greatest Man. And those are, spoiler alert, those are not our words, but rather those are Christ's words for John himself. So the true greatness of John the Baptist that we're going to see this morning depends on God alone. All greatness depends on God alone. And as we pick up this scene that we left off last week in Luke 1, we see that very clearly. God is truly great. And God's presence and his purposes and his greatness really challenge man's doubts. God's presence is all over the sermon text, and it is triumphant over man's doubt in the text. This morning, we're going to see three truths concerning that. First, we'll see God's presence is greater than our doubts. Secondly, we'll see that God's purposes silence our doubts. And then finally, God's greatness can transform our doubts. It really can. And what a beautiful thing to believe this season. Let's first talk about God's presence in this text. God's presence is greater than our doubts, point one. God's presence is something that is great and greatly to be praised. The Bible makes that clear. And in the scriptures, it was not frivolously understood. God's presence in the temple where we pick up this story this morning was especially to be respected. You could die ministering wrongly in the temple of Yahweh. So first, let's catch ourselves up, jumping into the middle here. Think of it like this. Previously on in the temple with Zechariah, okay? The days are evil. The people of God are oppressed, yet they're able to worship Yahweh. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth are these two, this sweet old couple that's been introduced to us. They are a faithful pair of a priest and a priest's wife. We learn that they're old, so old that they will not be able to have children of their own. She's barren. Zechariah is serving in the temple as one of the many 18,000 approximately priests that are rotating in service in Jerusalem at this time. It's his time to serve. And by lot, being there, he has been chosen for a truly once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him to go into the temple, into the holy place, and offer twice daily an incense offering before God. It's likely in the evening, considering that there's this gathered crowd that's there while he works in the holy place. The scene is heavy. You'll remember that his heart is heavy. The people are praying. And then what happens? If you remember, an angel appears with amazing news. And he promises Zechariah and Elizabeth that they're going to have a baby. And it's going to fulfill the last prophecy known to Israel. It's going to be a, a last prophet to prepare the people for their Savior. And now we stand with Zechariah in the temple, ready to speak back to the angel. Our scene opens there. But I want you to think for a minute, where are we? We're in the holy place. So let's imagine it together. Close your eyes if you need to. But to Zechariah's right is the table of showbread. It's the bread that a fleeing David in the Old Testament with his weary men ate it to keep them refreshed. It's a bread that is baked and made in the temple to be devoted to God. It's a symbol of God's providence, of his deliverance, that he will always feed his people. It even feeds the priest. As it gets old, it passes to them when they put new bread out and they eat it on a regular basis. To his left is a seven-branched lampstand. It's called the Great Menorah, and it is, it is dazzling to behold. Gold, large, shining light. And it is to symbolize God's creation power, his watching over things, his perfection. And it's also to be our understanding of rest. In front of Zechariah, uh, to his left, is the incense altar where he has been working to put the smoking incense in the temple. At this point, the smoke would fill the temple, and it was to symbolize God's glory filling the earth. To the right of that now stands the angel of God that he has just heard speak. The angel stands in all likelihood with his back toward the most holy place. Two thick curtains designed to keep anyone from seeing in. Where God's very presence is to be manifested above the mercy seat. The angel's back is to it. He speaks and it's as if the angel is speaking from a place where God is speaking to Zechariah to listen. All who come to offer here must do it in obedience to God's law. And God's law has been kept. And here is God's messenger speaking. It is there, surrounded by all the witness of these holy objects. Amidst all the faithful teaching of the order of the priesthood that Zechariah has grown up in. That he's believed with his whole heart. It's right there in the middle of what was the biggest moment in his life that he speaks the presumptuous and doubt-ridden words of verse 18. Look at him again. I'll summarize them for you. In that moment, he says to the angel of God, Holy, 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 are you? No. Does he say, bless the Lord, praise you God for this word? No. 
Does he say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I trust it. I can't wait to be a father. No, he doesn't. Look closely. He asks, how shall I know this? How can I trust this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. It's almost as if he's saying to the angel, how do you expect me to believe this? He doubts. He even uses a Hebrew idiom, which was used earlier for old age. It'd be like me and you saying, man, that person's older than dirt. Or man, they got one foot in the grave or they're as good as dead. It's not just kindly stating that someone's elderly to pose a problem of you know, barrenness and pregnancy, but rather he's irrational. His outburst of emotion when he hears this promise is to doubt. God's greatness doesn't seem to mean much to Zechariah in this moment compared to the plague of doubt and unbelief that he carried into that moment. What will the outburst bring? Look at the next verse. It's very plain. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Man, you cannot read this verse without saying, oh, crud, right? Oh, crud. Such a facepalm moment for Zechariah. A foot in the mouth, certainly shame, flushed cheeks. This angel's named, and it's something worth studying. Why does he name himself? Who is this? What is the name? Well, Gabriel actually means strong man of God. And this is his third appearance in Holy Scripture. Because in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9, he appeared to the prophet Daniel to interpret the visions that Daniel was receiving. And he's referred to there as the messenger of God, Gabriel. He and Michael are the only two named angels in Scripture unless you are to count Satan as well. But I want you to think about the importance of that because immediately a priest like Zechariah would know who this is and how important he is. Gabriel makes it clear through rebuke that the heart of Zechariah is wrong. His unbelief and doubt in God's promise and God's ability is not okay. And the angel evokes authority as one of the few, very few created creatures and beings that can stand in the very presence of God himself and behold God face to face. And with that authority, he tells him, I'm Gabriel. And I've brought you good news. Now this comment, this whole idea of this scene, it banks on the truth in Scripture that many Christians today are not well versed in. Do you know what it is? The holiness of God. God's holiness. God's presence, His holy presence, it should be a cure for our doubt. But oftentimes it's not. Should be, but it's not. Many in the church, many in the church, often have such a one-dimensional understanding of God that we end up focusing on Jesus Christ alone, which is good to preach the gospel. You must preach Jesus. But sometimes we're functional Unitarians. 
which is a, a fancy way of saying we forget the Trinitarian understanding that we've been saved and baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God the Father is a holy Father to be reverenced. The Spirit of God is His very Spirit that has created the world. It's through His Spirit He gives new life. We neglect the persons of the Trinity. And this encounter right here in Scripture is, is one place where we are privileged to see God's action, God the Father's action before the incarnation of Christ. And it's just before it. It provides us a vital lens of understanding redemption's hour that's coming. And it does so by letting us get this peer through Gabriel and into the place we dare not enter. For out of that place, God is speaking to his people to address them. Now, I personally have fallen into this trap of ignoring God's holiness. I, I owe so much to the late R.C. Sproul concerning my understanding personally of the holiness of God in Scripture. And I was reading this week in R.C.'s testimony, and in his testimony, he speaks of when he understood how important the holiness of God was in regards to the gospel. It was like being born again again for him. In other words, regarding this notion of God's holiness, there was a season where R.C. testifies that he was born again, yet he struggled all the time to recognize what he saw in ignorance as God being angry in the Old Testament and yet loving in the New. God commanding the slaughter of women and children, striking men dead like Uzzah, things that were we would simply term simple mistakes, treated as, as, as serious crimes of death. And he would ask things like, how could a good and a holy God create a world that's in such a mess? And he found no hope or answers in that season. He would ask questions like, how could I ever come to love such a God or trust such a God? But friends, our first point is this. God's presence is bigger than our doubts. And since it's bigger, that means that God can handle our hard questions. God can handle R.C.'s doubts. God can handle Zechariah's doubts. Hear me. God can handle yours and my doubts. R.C. became obsessed with God's holiness after this journey that he made when he was asking these questions. And he stayed that way till his death in 2017. We have much to owe him. In his book that he rewrote a couple of different times, he talks about this issue of Christians today neglecting the understanding God's holiness. He said, convinced that it is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with, it is basic to our understanding of God and of Christianity that God is holy. And he's right. And it's clear in our text that Zechariah, though versed in Scripture, has neglected the truth in this moment that God's holiness, God's holiness demanded that as he went in there, he was to be believing that him and his wife and his nation and his priesthood can trust God. And that trust should have produced in him faith, but it didn't. Another helpful comment, R.C. Sproul said that the Jews in this time longed for peace when the Prince of Peace would come to end the incessant hostilities from the days of their conquest of Canaan to the period of Roman occupation in New Testament times. There were only a few years when Israel was not at war. They were a beaten down people. So Zechariah's context and his circumstances, they inform his unbelief in this moment. Sure. They, they help us understand it. Yes. But they do so more 
What he sees as his circumstances inform him more than his understanding of the character and the unchangeableness of Yahweh and his promises. And that's a problem. Zechariah has failed to remember who God is and therefore who he is in God. And that's a problem. He failed to fear God rightly. Luther explains that like this. Luther said, we are to fear God not with a servile fear like a, that of a prisoner before his tormentor. No. He said, we're to fear God as children who do not wish to displease their beloved father. Zechariah, his thoughts have him acting like a prisoner in the temple, not a son. Ignoring who God is has led Zechariah to doubt God's faithfulness. Doubting God's faithfulness has increased Zechariah's boldness, but it's done so to his potential death and detriment in this moment. I don't think you and I understand on a surface you know, evaluation of this scripture how seriously life-threatening this moment is for Zechariah. His very clothes are adorned with bells for this moment where if they don't hear the sound of it, they know they must get right and go in and get him out because he's not moving. Because the very trauma of God's holiness, even bumping up against the most holy place, could be enough to strike him dead. His fear, however, of the unknown and the doubt have left him going into the exposed raw holiness of God Almighty. I mean, we need to ask the question at this point, when God's presence is not greater than our doubts, is a man undone? Is he going to be undone? Unmade before God? Well, thankfully, the rest of Gabriel's rebuke gives signs that he seeks. They're gonna, it's going to be punitive, but it's going to be personal, and this miracle is going to be restorative. You see, God's presence is greater than our doubts. And so because that's true, the next thing that is necessarily true is that God's purposes silence our doubts. That is, the way God purposes things, our next point, will silence our doubts. Look at verse 20. Behold, the angel says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, you and I may read this and think his punishment is less severe. Some would say that than we expected. Others may say this is too severe. But both views, whether this is too much or too little, are going to fail to understand the sign as it is simply presented to us. Let's see it free of bias. The angel's clear, okay? He's receiving discipline in this moment. There's no way around that. And it is for not believing the angel's words. His discipline shall be to not utter words himself. Now think, priests, preachers, speak the words of God to the people. And in this time, they did help make sense of what God says through his taught word. Zechariah remains a priest beyond verse 20, but one who has now to bear the shame of not being able to speak. In that sense, it's severe. However, in another way, it's a severe mercy and a grace that's been extended to him because it's not arbitrary. It's linked to a certain amount of time. I mean, his mute tongue will be released, but it's going to be in direct correlation to the fulfilled promise of what God has just said, his wife having a son. See, the very thing that his doubt prevented him from as seeing as good news, now he will have to silently in his own mind 
turn over and over again until he realizes it is good news, a.k.a. he holds his son in his arms. So the prophecy of the angel is not in question. Okay. In other words, when you and I present doubts before God's presence, do not make the mistake to think that your doubts somehow are having an effect on God's word being a promise. The angel's clear. What I have said will happen. In other words, God's promises are sure, regardless of man's doubts. And yet in the midst of that, instead of understanding that in the way that he was going to get to do it, that is to go out and to behold with his own tongue the promise and to tell his own wife and to do that. No, instead he's going to have limited conversation by the things he can write down or the motions he can make. In this way, Zechariah is loved by God and yet also receives discipline from God, which is so important when it comes to doubt. We must understand if we're in the covenant of grace, if we are in Christ, that God's discipline is at times punitive, if you will, for a moment. In other words, it's punishing for a moment, but it's not destructive. You can be perplexed, but not destroyed. Because in Christ, when we're disciplined in the Lord, His people receive His chastisement as sons, not prisoners. Explain it like this. The Bible is very clear. Hebrews 12, 10 through 11 comes to mind. It says, for they, and it's talking about earthly fathers that me and you have had, okay? They, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, now talking about God, God as a father, but he, God the Father, disciplines us for our good. Check this out. That we may share in his holiness. Think of point one. Think of the holy of holies, the most holy place. Think of the division. Those who are in Christ that are receiving from God discipline that is good get to share, take part in his holiness. The promises, they can become realized because they're rooted in God's character, right? Now, remember this about discipline, and especially our children. I know we say this to them often. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But, promise time, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, let's apply that to this point, God's purposes, silencing our doubts. Okay, this is the spirit of Zechariah's discipline. It is with promise and hope of restoration fully resting on God's character, that God speaks to him in this way through the angel. But for now, that character, that understanding of God's holiness is the silencing of Zechariah's doubts, literally. Christian, today, let me ask you a question. Where are you doubting God? If God's presence is bigger than our doubts, then God's purposes can silence our doubts. Ask yourself, you're in the temple you know God's promises. What's keeping you from connecting them by faith? Is it God's providence? He will give you all that you need, so don't tirelessly fight in your own strength to build your wealth or to deal in greed. Instead, live generously your life, all of it, toward God. Is it that? Are you doubting His care for you? Ask yourself, has he not spared even his own son for you? What more could heaven give? You're loved in Christ. Will you cast your cares and your anxieties on him knowing that he cares for you? Doubt would stop you. 
Maybe it's his ability to save. Do you doubt that? Do we doubt his ability to save to the utmost? He's mighty to save. Salvation belongs to our God. A day to him is as a thousand, a thousand as one day. There's not a hair that turns gray apart from his permission. Do you doubt he can save to the uttermost? We're to grow fierce in our prayers and our efforts. And we're to grow weary in doubting him. Now, in these few ways we struggle, I've listed, and it's not an exhaustive list that we doubt God. Notice, I started each of those questions to us this morning with a question linked to God's character. Do you doubt His providence? Therefore, you have issues in the way you think about managing your life, right? Do you doubt His ability to save? Therefore, you don't evangelize, maybe, or you doubt your efforts in evangelism, right? Is there some character of God you're missing out on that directly links to his promises that you let things like doubt get in the middle of so you don't grab those promises easily? Because that's what's happening here. What's amazing is, is if you are struggling, know this. Be careful. Be careful, afflicted saint. Because when you and I deal in doubt, we begin to deal wrongly with God. And to deal wrongly with God, as you see in this text, can sometimes evoke his faithful chastisement, his discipline. There is nothing glorious in doubt. Only God's glory over his enemies. And your doubt makes you at enmity with him. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing glorious in doubt. Only God's glory over his enemies. And your doubt makes you at enmity with him. In other words, it makes you an enemy of him again. What can we do? We throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We starve our doubts and we feed our faith. Now, lest we get lost in this moment, Luke reminds us of the normal day that this was. Look at verse 21. He does it by taking us out of the holy place and into the waiting room of the outer courts. Here is Zechariah's fellow priest, fellow man of Israel, awaiting his return so they can finish the final offerings of the evening in prayer together. His activity should not be taking this long. You see, there's always a rush on God's holy work, right? Like, we need to sit in patience and, like, endure and listen, but we're interested in vocalizing our doubts, getting a quick fix, and then leaving. And so Luke's trying to add to this by saying, look, the people were waiting. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. It was just another day, right? I mean, we know, we get it. What is he doing in there? And yet at the same time, there's this tension of they all know enough about God's presence to realize, do not dilly-dabble in there. So there's this peaked interest. It's painting a concern for John's unique story about being the last prophet. Verse 22, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I love the transition here. I want to preach really hard about holiness and doubt this morning. But I also want you to see that that we're the type of people, if we're in Christ, that we can receive a chastisement, even in preached form. But in actual form or preached at us from the Word, we can receive God's discipline. We can wipe the tears out of our eyes, press in, trust His promises, and then transition to life. Now, sometimes that leaves us maimed because of our sin, because we who sow to the flesh from the flesh reap corruption. So sometimes we're having to, you know, make a noise with our arms and stuff and get other people, you know, to realize God's doing something here and I need help. But we do transition. We're not 
traumatized by God's holiness to a point of not moving. We are actually moved out of our paralysis by God's holiness into action. So he came out. He's unable to speak. The scene speaks to us through the silence of the priest, right? Imagine the chaos. A dazed look on his face, an inability to utter a sound that makes any sense, and finally, through motioning, convinces these people. I mean, imagine your ears working on overload, your hands moving, your heart filling with words, and you can't say it. And you can't do it. He's going to be severely limited to charades for the next 10 months. Just think about that. The people of Israel have been trained, however, by God to expect visions, to expect messengers, to expect prophets. They have longed for God's direct revelation for hundreds of years at this point, and they've had none. You see, check this out. At the close of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says exactly what the angel just said. Malachi actually says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before he comes. And this, this person will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This stuck out to me. Zechariah, who doesn't believe that God's greater than his doubt, needs God to silence him to, to convince him that God's promises are true enough, had he walked in obedience, would have came out and said word for word what God said to his people 400 years before in silence. The exact message they waited for, for him to come out and say, the last prophet will be in my wife's womb, placed there by the power of God in the spirit of Elijah to turn all of our sinful hearts back to him as Lord. Zechariah would have been able to stand there in front of them and say that. But his doubt prevented him from proclaiming the gospel. Now remember the angel's promise. It does not stop the gospel. The gospel is going to keep unfolding. This baby is the last prophet. We're going to see in just our last point in just a second that Jesus himself will say that this baby is going to be the greatest to live. But in this moment, when an opportunity for Zechariah to stand great on God's promises was there, his doubt kept him from it. In other words, it's kind of like we say in evangelism, God will save, but if you don't go and share the gospel, you're not going to be a part of it. That's what's happening here. His own sin has cost him so much. We believe God's sovereignty over this doubt situation may leave him silent, but it doesn't mean the message of the gospel is going to stop. It just means that God's presence, when it's not greater than your doubts, God's purposes becoming a silencing of your doubts can oftentimes cheat you out of the blessing of, of sharing with others. That's what happens to Zechariah. He's cheated out of the blessing to be able to look these people in the eye and tell them with his own words. So, God's presence is greater than our doubts. His purposes do silence our doubts. And finally, God's greatness transforms our doubts. This is good news. Verse 23. His time of service ended. He went to his home. His home that we're going to learn is in the hill country of Judah. It's a small town just outside of Jerusalem. It's not far away from the temple. The estimated spot today is literally a two-hour walk from the temple site. So he walks two hours to his suburb. We can only imagine how he was received by his wife. I, just, I thought about that this week and I just laughed. Imagine the struggle they had in trying to communicate as he tells her God's promise to her that she's going to have a baby in her old age. But verse 24 is true. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And it says, for five months, she kept herself hidden. 
Now, after these days, we can assume that these were filled with, you know, writing notes at length, explaining everything concerning the angel Gabriel's visit to him. Elizabeth and him must have been ecstatic and terrified at the same time. I mean, they're going to be parents in their old age. What a rush, right? I mean, I can't imagine the joy that they felt. He knows his wife and God's plan and purpose are formed. And they're formed in a fetus. They're formed in a baby, a promised child. And what we're going to learn is that this child, from the very lips of God, is the greatest man to ever live. For our last point here, God's greatness transforms our doubts. I want you to flip over to Matthew's gospel. Flip over to Matthew chapter 11. I want you to see this with me. You see, it's from the loins of a faithful, old faithful, but doubting father, from the humility of a priestly daughter and a mother, comes the greatest man to ever live, according to Jesus. I want you to see that. Matthew 11, 1 through 11 says this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, this is John the Baptist, the baby, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Doubt. Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Promises. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I want you to stop there. I want you to see this whole picture of this sermon. I think it all comes together here in Matthew 11. John shares the same plaguing doubts as his father in his adulthood here. The exact same. He has literally baptized Jesus. He has seen Jesus as the Lamb of God and declared it to those. He has let his own followers pass from him to them. He has heard the rumors in prison now, having done the right thing for God, trying to honor God, stand on God's promises and principles. He's called out an evil king, Herod. He's facing death eventually. We know he's going to be beheaded. And in prison, sends to Jesus and asks the question, how can we know? He asked the same question that his dad did. How can we know? How can we be sure? He's doubting, just like his father and yet receives from Christ this commendation of women born, which is all people, all men. There's none that's been greater than John the Baptist. How in the world can that be possible? Brother, sister, friend, let me tell you how. God loves doubting people. Because that's all he has to love. Because that's all we are. 
We're just a mess of doubt. How? By faith. Look at the rest of the verse. Jesus says, yet the one, one, yet the one, just one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What's Jesus getting at? Gosh, if I could reach to my tiptoes into heaven and tell you the gospel again and let you hear it, I would because Jesus is saying John's greatness has nothing to do with his merit. He doubted Christ in this passage in prison as he waited death. John's greatness has nothing to do with his pedigree or who his parents are or the faith that they have or the line of priests and prophets that he comes from. In fact, we see clearly now that he walks in the same unbelief as his own father did. John's greatness had nothing to do with his message even. He was able to speak the perfect truth of the message and yet still doubt it. But Jesus shows us that even his own imperfect preaching, if it were perfect, it it wasn't enough. No, his greatness is linked to this one truth. He's the closest man, prophet-wise, in proximity to Jesus. He's the closest one. It's his proximity to Jesus alone that makes him great. Jesus says, I could elevate him to heaven. I tell you, he would fall under all of them. You know why? Because no one makes it to heaven on their own righteousness. So the greatest among you will still be the least in heaven because heaven just destroys all that. Heaven is a, a righteous gift to righteous people, and there are none to inhabit it. So who's the greatest? It's the one who understands the most about Jesus. It's in humility that God's greatness can transform a doubter like John. It's in humility that God's greatness can transform a rebuked Zechariah. It's in humility that Elizabeth can hide herself for five months. She wants to make sure that no one knows this pregnancy until it is very clear that this is from the Lord. She says, thus the Lord has done for me. So what did she do? She kept herself hidden. Thus the Lord has done for me when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In other words, she's been faithful to her husband. She's been faithful to her God. She's been faithful through the doubt. She's been persistent in humility. Her meekness, her gentleness, her belief now has her reward. Faith in God. Peace. Peace. In old age, Elizabeth can inherit this baby, this greatest one. And in in the tradition of being great, he can doubt God in prison and yet still be called it. Do you know why? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone. A transformation like this only comes through faith. Only through faith. Do you have it this season? Advent is a season to remember. It's a season to remember God's presence. But if God's presence doesn't translate into being greater than your doubts, you've wasted the season. Advent is to be a season of God's purposes. God has purposed his coming. He has done it in time. He will do it again. He does it in hearts. And that should silence your doubt. And if it doesn't, you're wasting the season. And finally, God's greatness in this season, it has to transform our doubts. In closing, Romans 10 challenges us regarding faith and the ability to hear it. Clearer than the angel Gabriel... Thank God we do not need angels to show up to us anymore, right? The word is clear. We don't want angels showing up to us, trust me. But man, clearer than the angel Gabriel, God has asked these questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
He asks us, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach without, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed who has, what he has heard from us? Final word. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to the lost world and believe God's promises. You see, what's amazing is, is that when we are there in our doubts and God silences them possibly, or we do recognize His presence is greater, we will reach past our doubts into God's promises, take it, and where does it send us? It sends us on mission. Like He has to come out and He has to like be aware of what's around Him, right? He can transition. The hope of the gospel can transition him to do what he's called to do. His son, when he's born, will grow up. We'll see next week and do the same thing. You and I, sons and daughters of God, hopefully can do the same thing. So brother and sister, let's do it. Let's do it with gladness. Let's do it with joy that's set before us. If this Christmas is to be merry, let it be because Christ has come, Christ reigns, and Christ will come again. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for Advent. Thank you for John the Baptist. Thank you for Zechariah and Elizabeth, God. Thank you for angels. Lord, thank you for your truth. Your truth is like a light. It can send itself into the pit of our doubts and our despairs and get our eyes up to your holy hill. So I pray you would help now. May your truth aid us to lift our eyes to Jesus. Lord, we are chastised by you. Help us to be a people who receive your discipline with gladness, God who know that for a moment it may be painful, but in the long run, it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Father, train us up as a church to be disciplined in your holiness, to not neglect you, to understand you as Father, Son, and Spirit in this season. Father, to point in all that we do in this season, help us to point it back to you. Lord, we ask that you would starve our doubts and that you would feed our faith. Lord, we pray as we respond in song and as we come together as a church and pray that you would hear us and you would answer our prayers from on high. We trust you, God. We thank you in this season. In Jesus' name, amen.